feels like summer today, right? I'm confident that if my son were home from college, he would be in shorts here today. Uh, absolutely. I would wait until Tuesday when it's supposed to be 40. I will absolutely be putting on shorts if it's 40 degrees. That feels so nice. What's our sermon series called? It's called Hope Rising. And what are we looking at in this series? We are looking at a New Testament book called 1 Peter that is all about the the living and overflowing hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at this living hope that we have no matter how hard or challenging our circumstances are. As a matter of fact, in the book thus far, we've been looking at the people that Peter is writing to and the fact that they're going through hardship, they're going through challenge, and can live in hope despite that. And today we're going to transition, and he's going to talk about hope that we can live out even when that challenge and hardship is brought about by other people. People who are intentionally opposing us or are persecuting us. Uh, there is a lot of different levels of persecution of people who follow Jesus around our world. There are places where persecution of believers is violent. Uh, A few years ago, a young woman got a letter out of a prison that she was being kept in in China. And she writes this, My name is Wu Zhang. I'm a 32-year-old woman. And I was sentenced to two years in prison because I believe in Jesus. One night at about 10 o'clock, I was getting ready to go to bed. Suddenly, Li Bin, assistant director of Xinyi Police Station, climbed over the wall surrounding my house and broke in. Li Bin got, uh, Li Bin got me into his car and took me to the Hang Yun Police Station. Over the next couple of days, Li Bin interrogated me five times. He used electric shock on me and pinched my fingers and back with pliers. I lost consciousness several times because of the pain. Lee Bin tried to force me to tell him names of others that worship Jesus, but I kept silent, and he couldn't get anything from me. Then Lee Bin sent me to uh, Xingyi County Detention Center. In the detention house, I was exhausted every day because we didn't get enough to eat. In the morning, we were given a small bowl of thin noodles and a hard piece of steamed bread. And in the evening, we got a bowl of thin noodles, which we called tiger's diarrhea. Mmm. On April 19th, Jingyi County Police sentenced me to be in prison for two years for associating with cults and breaking the law. Lee Bin handcuffed me and took me to the Women's Labor Education Center, where I have been ever since. The Center for Studies on Religion in Italy says that between 2010 and 2020, almost a million people were killed simply for claiming the name of Jesus Christ. That same center estimates that there are 600 million Christians who live in places where it is illegal, even punishable, just to be a Christian. Now, we don't live in a society where someone is going to pull out your fingernails with the pliers because you claim the name of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that there aren't times where we face opposition, where there are times where we are are mocked for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. How do we handle it when a coworker pokes fun at us because we stand with Jesus and for what is right? 
How, how do we handle it when family members talk about us behind our back because we're the weird Jesus people in the family? How do we handle it when people uh, exclude us at school because we've shared with others at our school the work that God has done in our life and that Jesus has saved us? How do we handle that kind of opposition? When we're mistreated or persecuted for what is right or for the sake of Jesus' name. That's what our passage today is all about. 1 Peter chapter 3, you can turn there with me in your Bibles or on your devices. 1 Peter 3 verses 13 through 22. And we're going to look at five different ways that this passage tells us we can live with hope in the middle of people mistreating us because of our faith in Jesus. When people are opposed to us, how do we live with hope? First, be devoted to doing what is good. Right? Be devoted to doing what is good. As all of the evil takes place around you, some of it may even be aimed at you. First Peter has reminded us again and again that we are supposed to just heap up more and more good with our life. Verse 13 says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? What does he mean when he says, who is there to harm you? He's about to tell us there are people who will harm you. He's saying here that the general response to doing good is positive. If you do good in your life, the general response for most people is going to be positive to that good. Hasn't that been your experience? When my wife and I first moved into a house in St. Paul, we were a young couple with no kids and there was a young couple that lived next door to us that had a newborn. And the dad in the family tore his ACL one winter. And so my wife and I went over and we shoveled their walkway and shoveled their driveway that whole winter. Mostly it was my wife that did that. She's a nicer person. <laughs> what was the response from that couple to the good that we did? It was very positive. And in general, when we do good and show love, the response is going to be positive to that. And that's what he's saying here. We're to be people who are totally devoted to doing good. And in general, the response to that will be positive. As a matter of fact, what's the word used in this verse for our commitment to doing good? We are to be zealous. What does that word mean, to be zealous? It means to be obsessed we are to be a people who are obsessed with doing good. As the world around us is crumbling into evil, Jesus' people are to be totally obsessed with doing good in everything. Even when people mistreat us, we are to come back and not respond with evil for evil, but overcome evil with good is what the scripture says. What does that look like in your life this week? Being obsessed with good. What is God calling you to? in the next few days, to live out this obsession with goodness towards others. The first way we express our living hope, even in a world that may mistreat us and be opposed to us, is by continuing to do good, being obsessed with doing good. The second thing that we see in this passage is that we respond to opposition by believing God's promise for future blessing. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness', righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now, the general reaction to doing good is positive. But are there going to be times where people, groups, even society, 
decide to treat you poorly because you claim the name of Christ and seek what is right? Yes. Yes, absolutely there will be. What do we do in those situations? How can we have hope when people are intentionally harming us in some way for what is right or because we stand with Jesus? How can we have hope in that situation? By remembering that God has future blessing for us. Right? What did he say? You will be blessed. The author of this book, Peter, sat with Jesus one day as Jesus taught a crowd this lesson. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice and be glad when other people are cruel to you? When they revile you? When they speak all kinds of evil against you? How can you have hope and rejoicing in that situation? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How can we be people who live in hope and joy even as there's opposition to us, even as people mistreat us? By remembering God has great reward for those who stand faithfully for him in heaven. Three different times in this book already, Peter has reminded us that we are simply exiles or sojourners in this world. Our life in this world is a blip compared to the eternity that we have with him. And he wants us to be mindful of that. Not only that, he wants us to recognize that if we will stand faithful for Jesus in the midst of opposition, we are actually building up the blessing of eternal reward in heaven. We are building up greater reward in heaven. This can be a challenging concept if we have a non-biblical idea about heaven. Uh, Some people picture heaven as an eternal socialist society in which no matter how we live our lives here on earth or spend our lives here on earth, we all get the exact same thing there. Right? But that is never the Bible's picture of heaven. When the Bible teaches us about heaven, it says that the only way we can get there is by the grace of God. And that grace is only activated in our lives through faith or belief. But among those who have that faith or belief, who have God's grace active in their life and will be in heaven, the Bible teaches us that there will be all different levels of rewards and responsibilities in heaven based on how they have stewarded their lives here on earth. It teaches us that again and again and again. And Jesus says one of the primary ways that you can heap up rewards for yourself in heaven is by standing faithfully for Jesus in the midst of opposition here on the earth. What a difference that makes in our mindset if we understand that, right? A silly illustration to help us uh, process this. Let's say that Uh, I had up here on the stage a bucket of baseballs. And I took you, I put the bucket of baseballs here, and then I took you and stood you right here. And then I had everybody line up in a big long line behind that bucket of baseballs, and we played a game where every person got to throw a baseball at you as hard as they possibly could from this distance. Right? How excited would you be about that game? 
Uh, there's going to be bruises and welts. Yes, there'll be some people who miss. Yeah, yeah, even from this distance. But some people won't, and some people will throw hard at you. Right? You're not going to be excited about that game that we're playing. But what if I took you off to the side before the game started? And I secretly told you that for every baseball that hits you, next week, I'm going to give you $10,000. And you knew that I was good for it. Right? Next week, every baseball that hits you, you are going to get $10,000 per baseball that hits you. How is that going to change your perspective on this game? Right? You're going to actually be moving to try and get hit by the baseballs at this point. Every bruise, it's still going to hurt, isn't it? And you are going to be so sore this next week, but there's going to be kind of this pleasantness to the soreness, isn't there, in all of that. Because now, as you sit here getting pelted by baseballs, you're not just mindful of the pain, you're even more mindful of the reward. And that's what Jesus calls us to. You're going to have people who are opposed to you, people who persecute you, who say all kinds of evil things against you because you stand for Jesus and you stand for what is right. He says, be mindful of the reward. Great is your reward in heaven, he says. And we need to be mindful of that. So how, how do we live with hope in a world filled with opposition? By believing God's promises of future blessing. Now the passage goes on with another way that we live in hope in opposition. And that is to honor Jesus above all people. You want to live with hope in the midst of a world that opposes you? Honor Jesus above all people. The next section of, of, the, of this passage says, Have no fear of them, those who might harm you or persecute you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. How can we not be afraid of others mocking us or persecuting us? How can we not care primarily about what they think of us? It's only when we set aside Christ Jesus as Lord in our life. The primary thing that kept me from acknowledging Jesus in my life when I was in elementary school was that I cared a great deal about what my friends thought of me. And I didn't want them to mock me because I was a follower of Jesus. And so I never talked about it, never admitted it when I was in elementary school. Why is that? Because I had set aside my friends as Lord in my life. I would never have put it like that in elementary school, right? But ultimately, my behavior was being based upon what they thought of me. They were Lord in my life. And the only way that we can be a people who, who don't care primarily about what others think of us or what they might do to us is to set aside Christ as Lord. The only way that we can be free of caring primarily about what others think of us is by finding someone that we can put at the center of our life who we care more about, where we care more about what they think of us. We can never be free of that care of what people think of us by trying really hard to not care about their care for us, right? That, that just doesn't work. Right? We can never be free by simply saying, well, I'm just, I'm just going to work at not caring about what they think of me. No, we have to find a replacement that, where we care more about what that replacement thinks of us than what they think of us. When, um, when I was 15, I started dating Erica. Way too early to start dating. 
right? But it worked out for me. And in the midst of that, uh, all, all of our dates early on were in group settings. We went to youth group functions together. Uh, we went to Youth for Christ together. I didn't go to Youth for Christ, but she did. And so suddenly I started going every week. Imagine that. And in the midst of that, my care for what people thought of me changed. Before Erica, when I would go out with groups of people, my primary care is what my friends thought of me. Did, did, did they think my outfit was okay or were they going to mock me and ridicule me? Did they think what I was saying was funny? Did they, did they think what I was saying was cool? Those kinds of things. But all of a sudden, when Erica was introduced into the picture... I stopped caring about what my friends thought of me. They could mock my clothes all they wanted. All that mattered was, was Erica okay with it? Did, did Erica like it? Right? Suddenly, they had been replaced by someone more important in my heart. And all I cared about was what she thought. Right? Now, that's an unhealthy, un, unhealthy transfer from one set of people to a person. God says we have an opportunity to make the healthiest of transfers, from caring about what people think of us to only caring about what he thinks of us. And the only way that we can ever be free of caring about what people think of us is to set aside Christ as Lord so that our only thought is, what does he think of us in this moment? That's why Jesus tells us not to fear those who can only kill the body, but what? But fear him who can kill body and soul in hell, he says. Right? You have to replace this reverence over here and concern for these people with a genuine reverence and concern for God. That's the only way that that works. How do we live with hope in times like this? By honoring Jesus above all people. Fourth of our five things. How are we to live in a world filled with opposition? Respectfully explain your hope to others around you. Always be prepared to make a defense, verse 15, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now if you look at this, verse 15 makes a really big assumption about how we're living our lives, doesn't it? What is that big assumption? That we will be living with hope. And not just hope, but an overflowing hope that is abnormal in this world. Where when we come up against hardship and challenges, we will be living with an overflowing hope that actually causes people to ask us questions about where that hope comes from. And what are we to be doing about those questions that people might ask about our hope? We're to be preparing to give an answer. right? Be prepared in order to give an answer the Greek word here is apologia, an explanation, a defense of the hope that you have. Now, I want to point out, this passage does not call on us to be able to give an explanation for any possible question that a person might ask. I think there are some people who don't share their faith because they're like, well, I don't know the answers to every possible question that someone might ask me. That is not what this passage is saying. It says, no, no, be ready and prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. How has Jesus worked hope into your life? Know the story of Jesus and how he wants to work hope into everyone's life. You don't have to be prepared to give an answer to any possible question. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in your life. 
And as followers of Jesus, as we make that defense and give our hope, how are we to do it? With gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. People are never won to Christ through angry browbeating. More and more, that is the tenor of conversation in our world as people just shoot shots at each other because of disagreements. But believers are never involved in that kind of angry exchange, but instead we give a reason for our hope with respect and gentleness. That's how the gospel moves forward. How are we to live in a world filled with opposition? By respectfully explaining our hope. And now the, the final, the fifth. How are we to live in a world filled with opposition? Remember that you're on the winning team. How are you going to live with hope as people mistreat you? As people are opposed to you? By constantly reminding yourself that you are on the winning team here. Verse 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's easy when people are are mocking us or ridiculing us or persecuting us to feel defeated. And here in 1 Peter, what we see is it, it was possible that people would have felt a great deal of defeat when Christ was suffering. When Christ died. But ultimately, how did Christ's story work out? In life and in victory. There was a time that it felt like defeat as he was in the grave. But ultimately, it ended up in life and in victory. He went to the cross so that he could take our punishment so that we might be a part of the family of God and share in that victory. Christ has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He is the captain of the victorious team, and we have an opportunity to be a part of that team. His victory, I think, is what verses 19 and 20 are about as well. They say, in which, so in the realm of the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What in the world does it mean when it says that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah? Uh, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said, there is no more obscure passage in all of the New Testament. He said, its meaning has never been determined So I'm not about to tell you that I have unraveled this after 2,000 years of people debating what this possibly means. But, But here are the three best explanations in my mind of what it means that Jesus preached in the Spirit to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah. First, some people believe that this means Christ went, the Son of God went in the Spirit and actually spoke through Noah to those disobedient people in Noah's day, right? So here it is Christ spiritually speaking through Noah to those people in Noah's day. Second explanation is that Christ went between his death and resurrection 
and went and proclaimed his victory in Hades, the holding place of the disobedient. He went and proclaimed his victory to those people and their souls who had been disobedient in the days of Noah. And so he goes to the holding place of the dead and he proclaims his victory to them, those who had been disobedient in the days of Noah. The final possible explanation is this. Christ proclaimed his victory and their defeat to the confined evil spirits who disobeyed and did unnatural things with the daughters of men in the days of Noah as described in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. These evil angels are kept in confinement. Now, we're getting a little in the weeds here, right? But it is that last interpretation that makes the most sense to me. That Christ went, perhaps between his death and resurrection, and proclaimed his victory and their defeat to those evil spirits, to those disobedient spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah and did unnatural things with the daughters of men. Angels being in confinement is something that the scripture speaks of other places. Perhaps even these disobedient spirits. Jude chapter 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This same author in his next book, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. I, I like this interpretation of Jesus proclaiming his victory to those sinful, those, those disobedient angels for a couple of reasons. First of all, this word spirits in the New Testament is used almost exclusively about angels and demons and very rarely about the souls of people. Second, this idea of prison that is mentioned here corresponds much better with the condition we see of these disobedient angels than anything we see of souls that are awaiting judgment. And so this would be my guess. But again, let us recognize that for 2,000 years, the the, the brightest minds, the most spirit-filled people in the church have said, I don't know. And so let's be very careful about building major theology about passages that are significantly unclear. But if if I'm right, then I think this fits with the theme because Jesus is declaring his victory over his enemies. Just as you might feel defeated when you're being persecuted, but need to recognize that you have victory in Christ. So Christ looked like he was defeated in the grave, but during that time was actually proclaiming his victory to those who had been disobedient. To his enemies, he was declaring his victory. And it is a reminder to us, just as Christ was ultimately victorious, we can be ultimately victorious, no matter how hard things look, when people are being terrible to us. Now, we can be a part of this victorious team that Jesus is the captain of, right? This has been all about his victory, but we can be a part of that team. And the final two verses say this, baptism, which corresponds to this, it corresponds to that um, salvation through the ark there, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. I'm sorry. Did, did that passage just say baptism now saves them? Anyone? Oh, yeah, it's right there on the screen, isn't it? Right? What does it say? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. I'm pretty sure that's what it says there. How does baptism save them? When the word saves is used in the New Testament, our minds almost immediately jump to the saving that takes place when sins are cleansed from our soul and we are given the righteousness of Christ. When we hear that word saved in the New Testament, our minds almost always jump to the cleansing that takes place and the removal of our sins. Peter understands that. And so when he writes those words, baptism, which now saves you, he immediately qualifies what he is saying. He, he knows your minds are going to jump to that cleansing of sin from our person. And so he immediately qualifies so that we don't get the wrong idea and says, not removal of dirt from the body. Literally, not removal of filth from the flesh. He says this isn't about the cleaning or removal of sins. He's not talking about a bath here, right? He's talking about the removal of our sins. He says not the, not the removal of filth from you. This isn't that kind of cleansing that takes place. Instead, what kind of salvation is he talking about? Because he tells us right here, right? Not the removal of dirt from the body, but what? But salvation from a bad conscience to a good conscience, he tells us right here, salvation from a bad conscience to a good conscience. How can a person's conscience be saved from bad to good through baptism? Well, think about the situation into which Peter is writing. They lived in a time in which believers were being persecuted, imprisoned. Some believers are even starting to be killed for their faith. And this is all about to get much worse. Many in the early church heard the message of Jesus and converted to Jesus, but then never told anyone about it. They were essentially secret followers of Jesus because to publicly come out as a follower of Jesus meant the potential to be imprisoned. It meant the potential to be killed. And so there were all kinds of people who said, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm never going to tell anyone. I'm never going to talk about it. When the authorities bring me before, before the magistrates and have me pledge that Caesar is Lord, I'm going to go ahead and pledge Caesar is Lord because I don't want any trouble here. I don't want to be persecuted. It is baptism in which a person came forward before their entire community and said, I refuse to live as one of these secret followers of Jesus. Right? What, what does Jesus say in the gospel about those who, who deny him before people? Right? He's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to deny them before my heavenly father. And so instead, baptism was that point in which they publicly proclaimed, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I want everyone to know that Jesus is Lord in my life. No matter how many times they drag me before the magistrates and ask me, 
Is Caesar Lord? My answer to that is going to be no. Jesus is Lord, and I proclaim it right here at my baptism in front of the entire community, in front of the entire town. It was through that baptism that a person was saved from a bad conscience. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm never going to tell anyone. To a good conscience in which their life was all lived in unity. I'm a follower of Jesus in private and I'm a follower of Jesus in public. And I want everyone to know that I am a follower of Jesus. Peter says, baptism is what can save us from a bad conscience to an appeal. The word here actually means a craving, a craving for a good conscience before the Lord. It's an appeal made through the resurrection of Jesus. We, we have no right to make this appeal for a good conscience on our own. We have no ability to make this appeal for a good conscience on our own. It's only because of the power and the work of Jesus being raised from the dead that we have any ability or any right to come in his name and appeal for a good conscience before the Lord. And those who declare that Jesus is their Lord stand with Jesus in life and in death, and they are those who stand victorious on the winning team. If you look at the very last verse, verse 22, it is all about how Jesus has been elevated above all things. He has all authority. He is ultimately victorious. And at times where we are getting beaten down by opposition, at times where others may be mocking us and ridiculing us, and we begin to feel defeated, Jesus says, I want you to set your mind constantly on the victory that you have in me that my team is victorious and that you're a part of that team. I hope you heard me use those words, feel, and set your mind. We may feel defeated during those times. And the way to battle that is to set your mind on the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. To constantly be spending time meditating on the victory that Jesus has given to us. How are we to be a people who live in a world filled with opposition? We're to be a people who are devoted to doing good, who believe in God's promises of future blessing, who honor Jesus above all people, who respectfully explain the hope that we have to everyone around us. And we are to remember that we are on the winning team. There is ultimate hope because we are on that winning team. As I've talked about baptism here in the last couple of minutes, it may be that God's Spirit is pressing that need to be baptized upon the, the life of someone in here or someone who is watching online. Let me encourage you to go to our church's website where you can find information about baptism and be a part of pro publicly proclaiming, I'm with Jesus. I, I want everyone to know Everyone in my church family, everyone at my school, everyone at my work, everyone in the community, I want everybody to know Jesus is Lord in my life. Right? I, I want to encourage you, if God is working in your life, to take that step to, to do that, to be obedient to that call in his life. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us. Before I do, I just want to let you know that we're, we're going to be taking our offering here in a moment, which is a way that we can express our love and allegiance to God. The ushers are going to be walking around with buckets, and if you choose to give your offering here, you can do that within those buckets. There are other ways that you can give as well that you can see on the screen. Uh, but let me 
pray for us as we prepare to take our offering today. Father, we recognize that we live in a world in which there is increasing opposition in our society to being a follower of Jesus and standing for what is right. And so we want to pray that you would be working in us so that we would be a people of the living hope, living out that hope day in and day out no matter how we are treated, no matter what challenges we face because we stand with you. And God, we want to pray for those who face much different, harsher forms of persecution and difficulty because they stand with you. Lord, we pray for faithfulness and for strength in the midst of the trial. Help them like us to see the ultimate heavenly reward that is ours for standing with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.